1: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, we have Williams College Associate Professor of Africana Studies, Political Theory, and the Philosophy of Religion, Dr. Neil Roberts. Dr. Roberts is here to discuss his brand new edited volume entitled, A Political Companion to Frederick Douglass. And this is published by our friends at the University Press of Kentucky. Welcome to the show, Dr. Roberts. How are you doing today? Thank you very much,
0: Adam McNeil, and I'm uh,
1: delighted to
0: be here with you and also with your listening audience.
1: Man, I, I really appreciate that. It's it's a pleasure to, and on, an honor to have you on the program today. Um, and so before we get into um, our discussion of your new edited volume a Political Companion to Frederick Douglass, can you give a bit of a background to, to your story of how you got to this particular book?
0: Oh, it's a, a long story, but I'll try and keep it. Um, keep it brief. Um, Frederick Douglass has always been a figure who has animated my imagination. First, because he's not only one of the major figures in 19th century America, but also uh, he is someone who, even when he was trying to think about questions of democracy, freedom, the status of a racial republic, uh, and our future worlds, he was someone who was also very much interested in hemispheric and international politics, uh, and especially in my case as someone who works uh, at the intersections of political theory, but also uh, Caribbean thought, Douglas has was for a long time someone who was very much interested in the Caribbean, particularly post-revolutionary Haiti. And so he's always captivated me, um, not simply because I agree with everything that he wrote or spoke about, though that's often the case, but he's the type of figure that is generative, even for those who might have uh, differing, um, uh, differing opinions. And in terms of your question with regards to the book, uh, this book, while an edited volume is, I hope, different than other books on Douglas, because uh, it was meant to coincide with our current year, 2018, uh, which is the 200th anniversary of Frederick Douglass's birth. Uh, but more specific to the structure of the book, uh, I was hoping to have in a single volume something that had not been done before, which was a collection of not only new essays on Frederick Douglass's political thought, but also a selection of important contemporary uh, essays that had been previously published, um, but not all in a single uh, volume. And so there's, there's other backstories to the book, but that's really the... Uh, the genesis of not only my longer-term interest in Douglas, but also wanting to have not merely for an academic audience, but lay intellectuals, anyone from s- those who uh, have read and written about Douglas extensively to those who this might be their first encounter.
1: And and I think that you know your the, the the volume is you know it's a it's a big book, but I think that what it does, and, and this is part of the reason why I actually. Um, uh, I didn't know this at first, but after reading this, I realized I really enjoy reading edited volumes because they're the, typically the essays are uh, a little shorter, um, than you know, uh, a lot of book chapters are, and, you know, and, and intermingles with that, uh, throughout the book. But what I enjoyed was, um, the segmentation of it. Um, so could you tell us a bit about how you structured, um, how you had the book structured as far as, um, uh, thematically? Absolutely. So... I initially had
0: imagined, um, first, my introduction, which is entitled Political Thought in the Shadow of Douglas. Um, I initially thought that whatever the final content would be, um, I would make some brief remarks, and then the majority of the introduction would be a summation of the essays that would be um, in it. And I had a draft introduction at one point, which I totally scrapped. Um, and I decided to write an introduction that wasn't a summation of the different essays, but actually was gesturing towards what do we think we know about Frederick Douglass and what are certain areas that um, perhaps we, we do not. And then in terms of the, the actual structure of the, the book after the introduction, there are uh, four main parts. Part one is entitled Slavery, Freedom, and Agency. Part two is entitled Judgment, Intersectionality, Human Nature. Part three, Law. And part four, Rhetoric, Citizenship, and, uh, and Democracy. And so I wanted to structure the book this way, because if we think about Frederick Douglass, who, even though we now know Douglass was born in 1818, Douglass, uh, who was very open about this when he was alive, uh, uh didn't know exactly when he was born. He was born a slave um, in Maryland Eastern Shore. And this is why in most scholarly periodicals or in a lot of uh, public um, documentation or op-eds or articles, oftentimes we see the year 1817 question mark. Uh, But we we definitely now know Douglas was born in 1818 uh, and someone who was born in plantation slavery. And so I wanted the beginning part one of the book to be about wrestling with how we think about through Douglas uh, how do we think about slavery, which in the United States context uh, was often called a peculiar institution, but in many regards Douglas didn't think there was anything peculiar about it. How do we actually think about slavery as a political a social and political system, and how do we actually Perhaps entertain two ideas with regards to the view of the slave. There, there's one view that thinks that slaves throughout time have no inherent agency, have no inherent capacity for action and change, and that's a very powerful view that is encapsulated with the term Orlando Patterson calls "social death." And then there's a second view um, of which I would situate myself in, which is, what is it that even if we think about slaves throughout time, including Douglass, who might have had a constrained agency? but nonetheless actually then did resist and did actually try and not only resist the condition of enslavement, but also to try and build another world. How do we actually kind of grapple with that? Part two then shifts to questions of judgment, human nature, and intersectionality, of which questions of masculinity um, and the relationship not only between kind of race and the human condition, but also questions of uh, gender, sex, sexuality. What does it mean to... Kind of judge to actually think about questions, problems that we face situations, and then render uh, judgments not only about what to do but what we might have done, part three then moves to the law, and I think the law is important because on the one hand, in the period of transatlantic racial slavery, there is the kind of the juridical aspects of the law. what is it uh what did it mean for individuals? who are humans who then ended up being reduced to this category of a thing. How does one actually think about our own sense of kind of freedom, uh, belonging, and and, and humanness when we may be rendered at certain points um, outside uh, the bounds of the law? And then what does it mean to potentially do actions that are unlawful, right? (laughs) That actually go against the law because we think those laws are Unjust, you know what are what are the moral and political ramifications of that? Uh, and then finally, in terms of rhetoric, citizenship, and democracy, uh, I wanted uh, the different contributors to wrestle with not only the question of kind of slavery, uh, but also what Sadia Hartman calls the afterlife of slavery. What are the ways in which slavery mutates right throughout time, even when social and political orders shift, especially between before and after the Civil War in, in, into our current moment. Uh, what are the ramifications of these uh, of these of these ideas that Douglas was wrestling with? That I would argue um, in two thousand and eighteen, where we've learned a lot from, but there's actually a lot that we can we can still uh, we can still learn. So that was the hopefully, if that gave a sense to you and your, re- your your listeners of the of the maybe the logic of the book and how it was organized in in the way that it is.
1: And and I really appreciated that uh that background for it, because when I think about um you know the 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 way that you structured the book um you know you had talked about masculinity um a lot or or, or you know when, when you had previously mentioned that because I thought about prior to reading this about um all of the different ways that you know people have is obviously i think the the most um known story even for those who maybe haven't even read any of the was how many narratives did he have three or four uh, throughout his life um uh but but throughout the various ways that he narrativized his life the most prominent story was the one uh, uh that he gained his manhood when he fought the slave breaker right um and so i've i've read so many different characterizations of of the way masculinity worked within the confines of um of Frederick Douglass's life, that I really thought that the, um, that the way that the, the, the book structured it was, was very good in how there are many different aspects of his masculinity and dealing with the form of intersectionality a lot with um, part two, I think was a really good examination of that as well.
0: Um, I appreciate your points. And so let me give your listeners a a bit of background in terms of Douglas's intellectual production, if you give me a moment. And then I think hopefully connect it to um, uh, the question of masculinity. So there is is an irony. What is the irony that I'm referring to? Uh, There are arguably two main texts that are currently perhaps the most discussed and uttered in uh, Douglas's thought in our current moment. The first Douglass's famous, um, 4th of July oration, uh, delivered in 1852, actually on July the 5th, the day after the 4th of July in Rochester, New York. And the second, um, Douglas's first autobiography entitled the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, uh, an American slave written by himself, which was first published, uh, in 1845. Uh, um, but, uh, it may surprise your listeners that in the early eighteen fifties Douglas's first autobiography went out of print and it was not actually brought back into print for a hundred years. think about that a hundred years uh, until Benjamin Quarles, who is one of douglas's early um uh one of Douglas's early biographers uh helped to then shepherd through Harvard University Press an edition of the narrative in the early um, uh, in the mid, in the mid 20th century. Uh, so, so what's the irony? The irony is now oftentimes Douglas is associated very much with his narrative when it was actually a text in his lifetime that was out, you follow, was out of print most of his, most of his life, which then suggests that as much as the, the autobiographies, if you're, if you if you're following me right now, it suggests as much as the autobiographies are essential to understanding Douglas's life and work, he himself did not think that that was it. We have to understand Douglass's autobiographies. We have to pay attention to Douglas's speeches. We have to pay attention to what political theorists call the aesthetic turn, the aesthetics, that Douglas was the most photographed American, not merely African American. Douglas was the most photographed American in the 19th century. Douglas, the way that his image was represented was significant to how he was thinking about ideas. So if we then think about the different autobiographies, we already said the first autobiography was in 1845. This is when Douglas then um, had recently escaped from Maryland. His route was he went, we now know, he went from Maryland and he disguised himself as a sailor. And then he made his way to Delaware, then from Delaware to Philadelphia in which he then went from Philadelphia to New York City, where he then uh, met surreptitiously up with his um, uh, soon to be first uh, wife. And then from New York, uh, uh, Douglas uh, and his first wife, then of several decades, then went to New Bedford, Massachusetts, the state that I currently reside in. And when to avoid being captured, Douglas changed. Uh, you know, Douglas was born Frederick, right? Uh, Augustus Washington Bailey, right? Bailey was his his his, uh, his 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 the name that he was given as a slave. Douglas changed his last name from Bailey to Johnson, but when he arrived in New Bedford, uh, it turned out there were a lot of Johnsons, and so Douglas wrote uh, read a novel and then ended up changing his last name to Douglas off of one of the characters, but it was a Douglas with one S. And so Fred, the person we now know as Frederick Douglass, he added an S to that character's last name. And that's the name that we we know him as. Um, In 1845, though, because of still fear of capture, then Douglas went to Great Britain for 21 months. And then when he came back, he then moved to Rochester, New York, where he had another major phase um, that I would argue to your listeners uh, and larger public that we should pay attention to, which is his journalism. Uh, and so when Douglas was in Rochester, New York, for uh, an extensive period of time, for several years, uh, he published several newspapers. But then subsequently, uh, uh, in 1855, that's the next important nod, was the publication of Douglass's second autobiography entitled, My Bondage and My Freedom. We have to recall the civil what will become the civil war hasn't even begun yet, right? That'll begin in 1861. So his second autobiography is one in which Douglas is still in the law, um, uh, uh, still in the law. Someone who, in the wake of the fugitive slave law, could be liable to be captured, right? And uh, and then uh, thrust back into kind of legal slavery, even though he had through manumission purchased um, his ostensible. Um, legal uh, legal freedom, um, and then after the Civil War, Douglas publishes his third autobiography. When Douglas essentially was a politician, so the last major autobiography, and you mentioned it before, you said three or four. I think that's accurate. The third autobiography, the Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, was first published in the early eighteen eighties. But Douglas ended up near the end of his life um, becoming. Um, not only very much a politician, but in a lot of ways, his political practice, he in some sense distanced himself from the, what I think of as the radicalism of his middle autobiography that we'll come back to shortly, is rife with notions not only of manhood, right, and questions of masculinity, um, but nonetheless, Douglas, in the late 1880s becomes the U.S. ambassador to post-revolutionary Haiti. What was His title was formerly Consul General and Minister Resident, uh, and Douglas went there not knowing what his real purpose was going to be. He went there um, not realizing that uh, what, what, what is currently Guantanamo Bay, right—the kind of this extra legal territory in what is now contemporary Cuba that is technically U.S. sovereign territory, Douglas was, put, Douglas was given the post to negotiate uh, in, in, uh, in Haiti a similar, uh, a similar type of space. And when he refused to do that, he was recalled. And it was at that point that Douglas then kind of rapidly put out uh, worked on and put out his uh, finished his his the second version, expanded version of his third autobiography, uh, which was uh, published in the early 1890s uh, shortly before his death in 1895. So this is all to say when we going back to your question of kind of masculinity, um, what has been some of the breathtaking writings of Douglas, but also areas that I think we would be right to kind of question Douglas's own um, visions of what the free life are, are very much encapsulated in that most famous scene in all of his autobiographies, the fight with Covey, right, <laughs> right, the fight with the slave breaker Edward Covey, and to kind of boil it down. Uh, to everyone in terms of what was the relationship of Douglas to Covey. Covey in 21st century terms is the individual whose slave masters outsourced their slaves, right? Covey was the individual for whom so-called unruly slaves, in this case, in Douglas's case in Maryland deemed unruly, whose slave masters would outsource their slaves to be broken. And broken Douglas seemed like like he was, but in the fight with Covey, right, that this two-hour fight in which Covey, uh, uh, in which Douglas, who is only in his mid-teens, and the slave breaker Covey, um, had this two-hour fight in which at the end of this fight, Douglas says, uh, in many regards, this not only, he says, made him a man, and he uses the term not to be simply a man for human, but really a, in, in masculinist terms, made him a man, uh, but also was the moment. As he states in his middle autobiography, where he says, mm-hmm. even though he was a slave, still in the law after that two-hour fight, he says he was beginning on the road to freedom. Right, that there was a way in which he said once Covey could no longer whip him, that there was there was a sense in which Douglas came to a realization in his view that there w- that freedom was not merely the kind of purely the material, but there was also a psychological depend uh, uh, the psychological de- uh, dimension of it. That would be um, essential but uh but the last points I want to make with regards to your kind of important question of masculinity um, actually uh the first of them has to do with one of the contributors uh angela Y the scholar activist angela Y Davis um, angela davis um, uh, had actually um, uh, a few years ago. Um, put together a newer ver- a version of the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass in which she meditated years later on her many writings on Douglass and Davis remarks that it astonished her that even in the wake of having been falsely incarcerated for a crime uh, charges of a crime that she did not commit and writing about Douglass not only while she was incarcerated um, but also afterwards that she actually reproduced not only the masculinist language, but also the ways of thinking about kind of freedom uh, that marginalize the voices of uh, uh, not only um, women, but also um, gender non-conforming uh, persons, uh, and the ways in which even Davis's own, own thinking about Douglas and also the idea of freedom or what she has called in 2016, the idea of freedom being a constant struggle, how that actually change in um, in her own minds, but I want to also orient your readers towards my second point, which is uh, the seventh chapter by um, Ange Marie Hancock Alfaro, which actually takes a very different reading of a lot of the literature and discussions of Douglas that rightfully so focus on Douglas's masculinism, question the ways in which Douglas, not just his autobiographies but his speeches. Um question the role of where do black women in the nineteenth century uh, fit within visions of the free life um, but uh Hancock Alfaro raises the question how can we actually think about relations between black men you know what are black men and also black boys' relationships to one another, and how do we account for what uh, Alf, um what hancock alfaro calls um restorative care. How can we actually think about relationships between black men and black boys uh, who have um, uh, who have faced um, certain particular uh, circumstances that also are worth exploring as well? And so I think that um, this question of Douglas and masculinity, manhood, how we think about the free life and also How we can even push against Douglas's own articulations over a long kind of life, I think, are very important for um, for what's going on um, going on
1: today. And I and I and I really like when you talked about just then um, how Frederick Douglass, because one of the parts that I always remembered learning about Douglas, and 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 before I get into that, you said that you're at at Williams, that's in Massachusetts. I actually. Uh, when we were conversing months ago, I was actually living in Massachusetts. Um, uh, I was I would ju- had just graduated uh, from Simmons College uh, in the city of Boston, so and actually worked at the uh, at Boston African American National Historic Site, and we would work uh, in the Museum of African American History. So every single day, <laughs> I would pretty much be um, at the museum and uh, talking about the uh, picturing Frederick Douglass. Uh, exhibit. So I, I'm, <laughs> it's almost um, on a, on an aside. It's, uh, it reminds me a lot. Like if I always made the case to the visitors, if Frederick Douglass was around in 2018, I would I call him, I would call him the selfie king because what is a photograph in the 1840s and 1850s if it's not the, the clearest example of a selfie, right? And how people problematize folks who always are at you know, have their phone in front of them taking selfies. Or so I'm like, what is a photograph or what is someone who's the most photographed American of the 19th century, but someone who is always trying to have their image uh, out there? And we know why, it, because of, you know, the, the way performance and construction goes. But but to bring it more to, to a, a, a smaller point, he's the selfie king. 2018, he, Douglas, he's a selfie king. <laughs> but um, but uh, away from that point, um, I, I really uh, thought that the, the 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 way that Douglas and in, in your political companion uh, book, it prov- I think it, what it does is that it provides people um, with in this year a phenomenal juxtaposition, right? Because one of my next questions for you is going to be about why is it that the political philosophy of Douglas, right, in its fullest articulation, right, because apparently Frederick Douglass is, you know, making the rounds in, in the culture this year, and, you know, he, he's he's still alive, making making his way from, from what we've been told in the political realm. But, you know, why has this been an area that has been so underdeveloped um, in, in the overall scholarship?
0: Yeah. So your point brings up one, not necessarily purely um, particular to Douglas, but I think the work on Douglas and the contours of that work um, help illustrate um, uh, what uh, the great Caribbean thinker, you know, Sylvia Winter uh, describes as the, not so much the obsolescence of disciplines, but the ways in which disciplines function and come into, come into being. for not just our contemporary moment, but for a very long time, including the 19th century, there was no shortage of work on Douglas in the fields that we could call history, mm-hmm. right? literature, um, rhetoric, right? Uh, even areas of the law, even to this day, in terms of um, Supreme Court justices uh, and different opinions on the Supreme Court, Douglas is cited by justices on the realm of the political spectrum, right? Even within that, but what is it about um, Douglas as a philosopher and also as a a political theorist, his political thought, why, you know, why has that not been, uh, has there not been more attention? I think that it's a larger question of um, what uh, some scholars call kind of Afro-modern political thought. There has really been, um, and not only an absence of certain figures and movements in the canon so to speak but also there has been an underrepresentation of thinking about certain figures and movements in the broader contours of uh, of political thought and i think that the example of of douglas is is an important one to show that a figure for whom there's still a large range of of work there still is not enough work in my estimation on thinking about Douglas as a, uh, as a political thinker. And and by political thinker, I mean someone who is trying to think about ideas, um, not only those mentioned in the book, but also other concepts such as justice rights, equality, in addition to questions that we try in mind in terms of democracy, citizenship, freedom, slavery, right. Judgment, right. Human nature that these concepts undergird the ways in which We eventually formulate policy. If we don't understand the ways in which these concepts work and are debated, then uh, we're not going to fully understand why we have differences in terms of uh, policies of the past and also policies of the present. And so I think there's the first in terms of what are the in terms of why has there not been work on Douglass political thought to the degree that there should be points to the Sylvia Winters point, which is the kind of the nature of Right, the nature of uh, of disciplines. Right, the ways in which Black Studies right came into being in the 1960s as a student movement, very much like the Black Lives Matter as a student movement. Right, make individuals, right. young people, making demands on uh, not trying to purely invent material, but trying saying there's material that has existed for a long period of time, but how can we actually have this discussed in our classrooms, right, in the public sphere, and systematically, right, uh, and and I think with, with Douglas, this is uh, the case in which um, I very strongly believe that not only did he give us a corpus to think about these questions of political thought, but there, were, there, there have been people who have tried to raise this question of framework before. And that's specifically the reason why this wasn't meant, and it could have been, it could very easily have been a book that was all new essays, right? It very easily could have been. But one of the things I want to gesture to, again, is not merely inventionism, but is to say that, they, that how can we recover and actually maybe even read for the first time works that were published not even that long ago, but might not have gotten the attention um, that, 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 that they really deserve. And so I'm really hoping that the political companion to Frederick Douglass will not only, within academe, um, push scholars working in philosophy and um, political theory in different units, mm-hmm. right? But also um, those who have a larger concern with um, kind of black studies or what Fred you know, Fred Moten, you know, calls not in the in the plural, but black study, right? right. You know, there's a way in which black studies, you know, you know, black studies then for many went to kind of Afro-American studies and then African-American studies and then Africana studies or Africology. And there are these different instantiations. And for some who are interested in the movement direction d- dimension you follow yes. the movement dimension. the real world the concrete um how can we also um you know think about regaining that dimension which i believe douglas was also very concerned with and if a political companion to frederick douglas can help to spark that then i would have considered it Um, you know, a success. So that's really what I want. This is, and I I end my intro this way, which is that I and others we don't make a claim that this is what we write about are all the dimensions or even the majority of the dimensions of thinking about Douglas's political thought. It's it's an invitation to talk, uh, to talk and think through and write about what I call the afterlives of Frederick Douglass. And that's really what, if you want to talk about a project, that's what this project is. It's really collective. It is not an individual project. It's really something that's hoping to spawn. New material and help recollect, overlooked, or understudied ideas, and and that's what I, I think we should be doing, um you know more about. And can I make a small a small point, which which is particular to academia? Oh, of course. I remember when uh, when uh um kind of thinking about you know when, when when people publish books or put them together, then there's a question of where are you going to send it to, and hopefully you know share. Ideas with And, and I ha- I've i already had, you know, the book um, was, was published right before um, the 4th of July, which had a, mainly because I wanted to have it then released at a time that had particular resonance to Douglas. But there were certain, for instance, journals, you know, <laughs> that said, oh, we don't, we don't review or we don't, um, you know, we don't uh, kind of send out edited volumes. That's just their policy. Right. right. And, and so I think there's a larger epistemological problematic. That is at the level of knowledge about how is knowledge transmitted, how is knowledge consumed, how is knowledge produced. Right? There is the kind of the individual eye. I mean, I want to go back to your selfie. Right? I, I love that. By the way, I hadn't heard that. Right? <laughs> Douglas is kind of the selfie king, or the selfie maybe inaugurating a kind of model of the selfie in the aesthetic turn. But there is there's something much more, uh, much deeper with that that I would I would add to, which is that. Um, and this actually does go back to the autobiographies, which is that um, the first autobiography of Douglass, a uh, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, written by himself. The picture on the, the frontispiece right shows not only a younger Douglas, but Douglass, but Douglass's vanishing point. You don't when you look at the original edition, his vanishing point is actually not to the viewer; it's actually to the side. And there is a way in which, and Douglas writes about this in his um, in his second autobiography, but also later in his is what came to be known uh, an important break with an individual by the name of William Lloyd Garrison. Right, um, William Lloyd Garrison was one of the major kind of white abolitionists of the nineteenth century. Uh, Acolytes of Garrison called themselves Garrisonians, and fundamental to Garrison, if we want to use con- contemporary parlance, right. Uh, is, uh, you know, one doesn't negotiate with terrorists. (laughs) Garrisonians saw slaveholders and slave masters as terrorists, right? They were perverting and terrorizing the republic uh, in which they existed in. And Garrisonians believe you don't negotiate with terrorists, right? But they had a term they called moral suasion. What's moral suasion? Moral suasion was the idea that one doesn't negotiate with terrorists. One doesn't negotiate with slaveholders and slave masters. One tries to change the hearts and minds of others, and garrisonians believe that one does this in a nonviolent way. Douglas, though, came to not only be under the spell of Garrison who he met in New Bedford, but when Douglas essentially became he went on a lecture circuit, right He ended up speaking on behalf of of garrisonians to primarily white audiences, many of whom there was a question of, did they think Douglas actually authored his first autobiography? But when he was going the lecture circuit, he noticed um, that Garrison and also many of the Garrisonians, they, you know, he kind of famously said, you know, the Garrisonians would say Doug, they, they would say Fred, as he was known, you know, we'll take, you know, we'll take care of the philosophy, right? In other words, we'll take care of the script. You just deliver it. You yes. follow right? You'll just, you just deliver the words. We'll take care of the philosophy. And in bondage in a second autobiography, Douglas says, I, felt tired of narrating, right, my life. I wanted to think about it, right? He wanted to become a thinker. And this is what connects to the question of why has there been an absence in Douglas's work in political thought and political philosophy? I think it fundamentally gets into aspects of of areas um, that Linda Alcoff and Charles Mills and many others have, have talked about, which is this sense in which how has there been, in some sense, a kind of colonization of certain disciplines, right? Uh, and how can we, in some sense, decolonize the ways in which we think? How can we actually start to open up and not merely be more inclusive, but actually think about the very nature in which disciplines came into being? And then actually, then try and um, what the Caribbean Philosophical Association has as their motto shifting the geography of reason, right? How can we actually shift the ways in which we, we think about disciplines? and then help to kind of reconstruct those uh, those fields in addition to transforming and creating um, creating new ones. And so I can go on and on. I know it's beyond what we have time for, but I really wanted to kind of make this point, which is this this contemporary question of, of, of disciplines has a, a larger um, story in not only Douglas's kind of life as a slave, but also um, the ways in which uh, he himself started to kind of reevaluate certain fundamental premises, one of which he thought, like Garrisonians, that he believed and argued that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution was a, were pro-slavery documents. And then Douglass, after his break with Garrisonians, would come to believe that they were anti-slavery documents that could be put in the service right, of, uh, uh, of egalitarianism and the free life and the overcoming of white supremacy. Um, but it was about using the ideals within those documents and turning them on their head, right? To get to the essence, and we need to be able to understand the essence. And the contributors are not. This book is not about consensus, right? right? This is not a consensus. This is about having individuals from a variety of perspectives. Um, arguably, one of the contributors, Angela Davis, on the one hand, and then the late Herbert Storing on the other, were kind of um, over their like you know their 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 lives and their work have. Um, have different perspectives on Douglas, but they each like the others um, get to debates that I think
1: we should be having. And, and I also think too that uh, to bring in another kind of, kind of way to bridge it. I I think about like, you know, I grew up playing football and one of the things that you would always see growing up would be like the black quarterback being the athlete Mm -hmm. and never being an actual quarterback. Right. That how, you know when we talk about like the Garrisonians uh talking about Douglas and, and how they say that you need to just provide the story and we'll provide the analysis and everything it's almost like to me in the same vein of like a, a like to 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 use this particular example of you can have the athlete but you can never have the coach you can ne- always have the skill position players around but you can't have the mind Right. That goes into being the quarterback, hence why there are so many different players that are black that play every other position. But even still today in 2018, the black quarterback is seen largely as the athlete and not as a thinker. Right. The smarts, the right. And so I think that when it comes to Frederick Douglass, especially when you talk about entertainment culture right, and and you think about kind of how speeches and and oratory Was what brought people out in the thousands, right? There's a reason why the why the Douglas uh, uh, Lincoln uh, Lincoln Douglas debates were so huge in their day was because people were standing outside, thousands, literally like thousands of people outside for hours, right? In the same way that people will brave sub-zero temperatures to go to a football game, right? Because it was the biggest articulation of you know entertainment culture and celebrity culture and also masculinity in a way too. Um, and I think that when it comes to bringing it directly back to the subject of Douglas, and, and, and not away and away from football, um, I thought that how when we talk about the piece about democracy and citizenship, I think that the part about Douglas that I I think I admire the most is how he was someone who right he I, I remember someone mentioning how before what would Douglas have what would the story of Douglas been like. Had he gone with John Brown for the raid upon Harpers Ferry, and his story ends in 1859, it would be a much, much different story, and our understanding of, of his political philosophy would be completely different because we have so many not only stories within the the, the autobiography and the, and the narrative tradition that Douglas continues and extends. But also, I think, too, in the sense of he personally is changing. He sees the other side. He sees, you know, a a jubilee. He sees, you know, radical reconstruction. He also sees um, uh, uh, um, the reconstruction broken down. Right. He sees the 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 rise of the New South lynching right? all these different things. And though you might not see deliberately those being talked about within his biographies, what you see is that you have a maturation process that coincides with the difference of the man and how, right, when we, especially when you talk about um, his friendships with other men, I think that that is something that, um, you know, talking about different intimacies, right, I think that's something as well that has been uh, underdeveloped in, in the scholarship of Douglas in the sense of... Um, he was a rival, right? A lot of times when people talk about his connection to other men, it's within rivalries and less about friendships. So the James McCune Smith mm-hmm. part isn't talked about as much as his, you know, eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties debates with other black men within the national convention movement, uh, within the color conventions movement, really, in, in the sense of African American men who are being uh, uh, the, the the upstarts, right? They are the ones who've been reading about Douglas, and now they're you know speaking. Not you know not not down from Douglas but with him right in these conversations and debates about the future of, of the race and the nation, um, and I and I really think that what this volume does greatly is that it breaks down the different stages of Douglas, but also breaks down uh, uh, listeners the understanding and the different ways of understanding Frederick Douglass in the entirety. Right, we have this new um, biography that's coming out um, from from uh, David Blight in the next couple. Months and so right, that's going to be another part of the story too in the biographical sense. But this, the great part about this particular volume, uh, listeners, is that you're going to see broken down by some of the great uh, thinkers uh, compiled, you know, edited by one of our our time's greatest thinkers in Dr. Neil Roberts, and how Frederick Douglass you know not only the man but also breaking down right what did he think why did he think and and the maturation process is how did he think about particular aspects of life and i think that it, it contributes greatly to our, our understanding of not only you know the past but also how it under, helps us better understand our radicalism for today as well
0: yeah i there're so many important points that you mentioned so i want to at least try and uh, follow up with a few of them. but Oh, hey, I, uh, you, you got it. To, we, we got
1: time, as I they say. I just wanted
0: to give a shout out to um, Professor David Blight because I think that um, you know, something I mentioned earlier, which was the impetus of this book, which was that there are certain fields in which there is a, a, a prominent representation of engagements with Douglas. one area being history. Um, David Blight has been a troubadour for a very long time in actually trying to bridge... Uh, many of the divides that I've been talking about. So for instance, one of the contributors, um, Robert Gooding-Williams, uh, to uh, is a contributor to the political companion for Frederick Douglass. Um, uh, David Blight and Robert Gooding-Williams uh, had collaborated for years um, on different projects. Gooding-Williams is a political philosopher. So there's a kind of a well-known edition of The Souls of Black folk that Blight and Gooding-Williams had put out together. And so I think there are those such as Blight who have Begun to try and bridge kind of historicism, right, with poeticism in mm-hmm. uh, in productive ways, and I also too uh, am delighted that. Uh, that that the very important new biography will be coming out very shortly. And so I want to go back to something that you had just said, which was if I were to kind of take a riff on it, I don't, you know, if, uh, I might be an older hip hop head, but you know, Nas's ether, you know, that kind of song where, Oh
1: yeah. Where, oh yeah.
0: Right. That kind of sense in which there has to be especially black, not just black, but black men in particular, right? there has to be some type of antagonism, not just, all right. Not just someone who's different, but an enemy almost. Right. This kind of this enemy. And so there's a way in which Douglas is usually posed as initially friends with uh, and collaborators with Martin Delaney, the one of the main architects of black nationalism in the uh, American 19th century. And then they have this break. Right. <laughs> and then with Du Bois and Booker T. Washington mm-hmm. and Malcolm X. But when you actually pull back the veneer. Of what many of these thinkers and artists were trying to do in many regards, a lot of their thought ended up aligning much more closely than is really thought. Uh, and I think this is also the case with, um, uh, with different black women as, as well. Um, but there are, there are, there, 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 I think there are four points that you brought up in your comments recently. One of which is this question of kind of athletes and, and thought Two, John Brown, three, the question of citizenship that I would also link Questions of immigration, uh, and um, uh, and then fourth, um, this 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 larger question of of how do we move from not merely juxtaposing kind of intellectual enemies, but also how can we actually have um, uh, generative thought uh, coming out of that? And so I just want to say something about the first three, which is that um, you mentioned you said football was also something you played. I entered um, usually surprises students when I tell them, but you know I applied to um college uh undergraduate undecided uh, as an undecided major which was not usually um recommended um though the- definitely not <laughs> The are two places i think i applied to was as a chemistry major um but i was a, a soccer player so in my other life i and en- i entered college thinking i'd be a professional. Soccer player, and uh, I had some good days. I think some good years. Uh, my my life took a different trajectory, but that's what I that's what I entered. Um, and I remember the first office hours I went to was actually with um, someone who was in my class, and, and the instructor asked if we'd ever considered, you know, being teachers, and we laughed literally out loud. And so the joke was, is my friend is a, the other person is a principal now, and and I'm you know I've been I've been doing um, kind of teaching in different ways, but. Uh, but that scholar athlete connection has never, um, has never, um, has never left, and so I think you're right that there is not only in terms of the questions of what are our visions of athletes. I think if you want to talk about connections to Douglas, kind of Colin Kaepernick, and also the kind of taking the knee movement, right? This kind of sense in which what is it about this black athlete who actually wants to do what? He wants to use thought, right? <laughs> he wants to say, "I'm still a a a yeah. a, a, a major international." athlete top flight athlete, but I am using arguably an argument that we saw in Douglas's 4th of July oration and many other kind of works, which was a sense in which some have maligned Kaepernick and those taking a knee and saying you're un-American, right? You're unpatriotic versus the kind of the line uh, and the position that Douglas took, which was actually, this is perhaps one of the most patriotic things one can do, you follow? One of the most important things a human can do, which is to stand up for the ideals that undergird a polity, right? And the question becomes, are those ideals ones that a polity wants to live up to? Or is it something that um, were never, in fact, um, ideals that undergirded the polity in the first place? And that's really, in many regards, a sense in which uh, to be, whether it's, an, it's, it's, it's not an either or, are you, I mean, Du Bois captured this in, famously in 1897, in the conservation of races, his, even though it's been transcribed on paper, this was Du Bois's speech to what was then the American Uh, Academy uh, of Negro Arts and Sciences, where Du Bois posed what would become the progenitor to the idea of double consciousness. He says, am am I an American or am I a Negro? Am I both? Am I neither, right? And this doubling of identities, which we have seen in the wake of uh, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw and also the discourse in intersectionality and third world and black feminists, uh, movements to think about what are our multiple identities and things that we do together. I think that we 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 see that, and we also see the kind of the marginalization uh, of the souls of black folk who 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 have come to experience an existence in in, in 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 being told that they are to simply do as ones told, rather than becoming agents and thinking beings themselves, which they like all human beings. Are. So I think that's the first point. The second important one, which is John Brown, which is one of those asterisk moments in Douglas's thought, where I, I honestly believe that he was, after the raid on Harper's Ferry, Douglas really began to question you know, his role um, in. Which was, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, John Brown being one of the major kind of abolitionists in the nineteenth century, but also. Um, one of the figures who Douglas came to know, the, actually John Brown, going back to Massachusetts for a moment, John Brown and Douglas met uh, an hour and a half away from where I live in Williamson. They met in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, and from there, mm-hmm. Douglas and John Brown actually had regular correspondences over this question of not only, you know, especially when Douglas moved to Rochester, John Brown had visited Douglas uh, at, different, at different moments, uh, but John Brown was an abolitionist who really believed unlike the Garrisonians, that if not the idea of violence for violence sake, but if there needed to be armed violent struggle as a means to achieve the not merely the emancipation of the slave population, but also in John Brown's view, he really takes a riff of something Aimé Césaire said in Discourse on Colonism, where Césaire said that colonism didn't simply, you had colonists who thought they were trying to civilize the natives, so to speak, the enslaved and colonized populations, but that the process of colonialism actually decivilized right, the colonizer. And John Brown um, believed that not just in terms of black and brown enslaved agents uh, and fugitives that, that uh, that he wanted to then try and incorporate into the polity. But John Brown believed that there were fellow whites for whom slavery had decivilized right, the souls of white folk. And that, um, when it became the moment in 1859, we know this because we know later that John Brown summoned Douglas uh, to meet um, on the in the Northeast right uh, soon before the raid. And, and John Brown told Douglas, uh, he said, you know, um, uh, uh, this, uh, an attack on what was then Virginia, what is now West Virginia, but uh, Harper's Ferry, Virginia at the time. This federal arsenal would be an important moment to strike a kind of a, uh, a blow to the system of slavery, uh, and Douglas ended up not joining John Brown because his rationalization was is that uh, Harper's Ferry was a federal arsenal, and to then attack, um, do an attack on the federal arsenal would be an attack on the federal government, which would have different implications. Dates matter. Remember, 1855 is when Douglas published his second. Autobiography. He introduces this idea of comparative freedom. He also has a shift in his. Douglas has a shift in his views on questions of revolutionary violence, um, theoretically, but when it came to the actualization, in, in a few years later, in eighteen fifty nine, Douglas wanted to kind of wait um, and perhaps try and have and think through a non federal. Space And John Brown said, no, this has to happen. And Douglas decided not to go with John Brown. And to your earlier point where you said, what would the future have been like had Douglas joined John Brown? And likely, um, if Douglas was not um, wounded or killed in, uh, in the attack, what happened to John Brown could have happened to Douglas, which was having a rushed uh, uh, a trial that ended up being um, rushed quickly uh, with um, a death sentence and then an execution. And Douglas spent several years, especially after the Civil War, meditating on on on, on John Brown and uh, and there is uh, there is a kind of a significance to that, which was really um, connected to a speech Douglas gave called "What the Black Man Wants," which is right near the end of the Civil War, which was trying to think about the future. you follow? The future of the world mm-hmm. we inhabit, when we're on the cusp of something—that John Brown's execution, that raid, and John Brown also being joined—not right, not just raided by whites, right? Shields Green and others, right—that there were those who then um, joined John Brown, and that this retrospectively we can say was really the catalyst for the Civil War. That was really the kind of um, what then set the uh, set um, the Civil War in motion. Especially as Du Bois talked about in Black Reconstruction, with the role of right, the role of kind of black workers and fugitives, uh, and also kind of whites challenging the question of uh, the future and status of of slavery in our uh, in the democratic polity. Which then brings me to the third point that you had made, which was the question of citizenship. I think we would be remiss if we want to talk about contemporary connections, not merely to the Black Lives Matter movement, but also to the question of citizenship and what's going on in the United States right now, right? We are in the midst, and also in the world, of a refashioning of the very idea of what citizenship means. Um, there is a recent book that is also out, right, Birthright Citizenship, right? Talking about the kind of the, the ways mm-hmm. the notion of birthright became central is out of Afro modern discourse in trying to think about what does it mean to be a citizen. But we're in a moment now where a couple of things are going on. The first of which is is a re questioning of naturalization itself. Right? What does it mean simply being is simply being born in a polity, which is the governing law of the uh, one of the governing laws of the land in the United States. Uh, what does it mean to be born in either a the kind of contig- you know, the kind of the states of the union or in the case of John McCain, people forget about this. Right? John McCain was born. Uh, on an out, not in, cont- in in one of the fifty states, but in a uh, in Central America, in a in a in a, what was then a U.S. territory, right? <laughs> uh, and so McCain had citizenship by virtue of that and could run for the presidency. After nineteen ninety nine, McCain would become he would not have been eligible to become president of the United States. But going back to 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 Afro modern discourse in Douglas, this sense of there's not only the question of birthright. We're in a moment in which naturalization. Not only for questions of those who have citizenship in the law by birthright, but those who have gone through a process, um, there is a move. There, there is there's coming from the office of the president, um, right? This question of should there should that be questioned? Two, what is one of the most pressing issues um, of the moment, which is how do we account for the fugitives of fugitives of today, those who are immigrating? Whether not merely kind of through regular legal channels, but also who might be un, who are either have been undocumented or coming to a polity because they are fleeing or taking fright from political persecution or a variety of other reasons, Um and this idea, not idea, the reality that there are actually det- there are actually centers, right? We don't have, just have young people, babies, right, who are being detained, who are being taken away from their parents for an indeterminate amount of time while the status of their parents, uh, the legality or, uh, of their, or, or whether they can have asylum in the United States is being determined, right? Literally being put in cages, right? And this sense of mm-hmm. separation, which Douglas wrote about extensively. I mean, one of the, um, unbelievable thing, um, about Douglas's writing is that, um, you know, if we go right now to Maryland Eastern Shore, much of what Douglas is writing about to the to the exact location is is almost the same. Right. And we know that Douglas, when he was born, his mother, who he would not know very well, was if you want to talk about taken away. His mother was, and he and his mother were separated. It turns out that his mother was only li- only twelve miles away from right. him, twelve miles away from him when he was growing up until his early about seven between six and eight years old when he came to a realization that he started noticing there was this person who kept visiting him at night which turned out to be his mother Um, that there was the idea that you separate someone else from birth and then not letting each of them know even that proximity, and then even when his mother then realized the proximity, there were certain constraints in which she couldn't do. And then by the time she would, um, in the evenings between the, that age that I mentioned, visit him, uh, it was still a different relationship. And then, and eventually, um, after those early years, he didn't, um, um, wasn't able to spend time with her again. What I'm suggesting. Is this question of citizenship has to is was not only fundamental to Douglas, but if we're thinking about today, which what defines a citizen? Okay, what defines a citizen? Is it where you are born, or is it something closer to the Garvey movement, which may has make made an argument even through documents such as the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is right the right to movement and also the right to um think about citizenship as not merely where you are born, but having the right to citizenship, the right to if one is contributing, right, towards a society, should that not be taken into account in the interrogative, right? Should that not be taken into account? And so these this is getting back to the question of Douglas's political thought and what have not only what have we learned, but what have we unfortunately either not taken seriously or really lost sight of, which is that Citizenship Douglas was suggesting is it, it's a co- it's a combination of all of these it's a combination of not only those who may be born within a space but it's also about those who in what does it mean for those who in good faith are are entering a polity not merely just um you know uh, for vacation right or for a reason that is um uh, might not be one of the most serious, but are doing it as 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 really kind of a life and death kind of scenario and also trying to make the case for the embetterment of their children. So imagine people who were undocumented who have come to a country, but then uh, while the means through which they came are undocumented, they have then raised children um, who have been citizens. What does it mean to ex post facto then try and deport? I mean, all of these types of questions, these are all... Ones in real time that that are that are being debated, legislated, and uh, and I and, and 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 I believe that returning not merely to the Fourth of July oration as important as it is, or the autobiographies, but we what we try and do in the book, which is different contributors actually look at um, Douglas's thought after the Civil War and his meditations on different Supreme Court cases, right? Not only Dred Scott. But also civil rights cases that were occurring uh, in the wake of right the rise and fall of Reconstruction. That Douglas was very much kind of thinking about this. And one of the biggest critics, both if you want to say it, a friend and a critic of Douglas, who would collaborate near the end of his life, uh, uh, the journalist and and uh, activist um, Ida B. Wells, right? Ida B. Wells Barnett. Oh, yes. he, he said that for the the biggest critique that Ida B. Wells Barnett had of Frederick Douglass is that for someone who had such a storied and long career, two of the biggest issues Douglas didn't address. The first, the convict lease system, which was the prototype for what we now call the prison system or the, and, and the prison industrial complex. The second being lynching. Right? And Ida B. Wells said to Douglas, how can you be continually claiming to be concerned about slavery, its afterlife, and the free life, and the status of black folk in the U.S. and also in the diaspora but especially in the US and not not simply write about but not advocate and talk about and and reject right lynching as uh as as perhaps one of the most defining features of the afterlife of slavery right uh and 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 Douglas wood near the end of his life but that also points to not only the brilliance of Douglas but also who are those troubadours like Ida B Wells and less well known figures uh particularly black women who were Arguing for a lot of around the same concepts, and we're also uh, and we're all, and we're also offering potential solutions and 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 ideas that um that even pushed against Douglas's own uh, disposition. Uh, those are individuals I'm hoping people will also kind of write about. Um, but I think the political companion to Frederick Douglass is at least raising what are some of these kind of questions that Douglas was exp- uh, exploring but but really making the case that 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 these have a particular resonance in our moment and let me be frank i wish douglas was <laughs> was um boring you know i wish douglas's what he wrote about and lectured about were things that were some type of artifact uh of the past um i have a 10-year-old and a 2-year-old and my 10-year-old just doesn't even understand the idea of like a like a um tape player, you know, <laughs> like you put music in the tape player. Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand it, right? Because it's a technology that is something that, yeah, there's some remnants of it, but it's not something that's that he grew up with. My oldest grew up with. I wish that Douglas's ideas about um the racial polity uh and these various ideas were like that. But but they're not. So the question is, um do we simply ignore or do and put a bandaid over issues or do we actually really try and address head on um those issues. And I think if we're gonna address head on then, then then I think um Douglas is a um an interlocutor for us to be able to to do it. And I think the work by the Blights uh and also as the recent work on kind of women in the world of Frederick Douglass and various other important works that are coming out uh in this last this year and recent are giving texture, you know, to all of that. Um, and, and and like. Yeah.
1: And and that's why I think that I'm so so glad that um that you know that we had actually and also in the last part as well, uh uh gotta gotta definitely shout out, you know, we, we had uh an interlocutor um in this particular uh situation uh because I believe um one of our colleagues uh actually reached out to me. Um it was Dr. Annette um, Joseph Gabrielle uh, actually uh, connected us. Yeah, so we definitely got to shout her out. Cite black women, you know that's what we do out here. Uh, so, um, so definitely got to give her a shout out too for for putting us together.
0: International work, right? Who's doing work thinking about black women, not in the U.S. but also in the larger Francophone world, connecting Africa, Europe, right, the Caribbean, and, and the U.S. Right.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, and and she'll be she, she and the others at the University of Michigan will will be hosting the uh, the the next uh, African American Intellectual History Society's uh, a conference in 2019. So uh, I'll definitely be out there as a new member of uh of the team over at Black Perspective. So um, it's uh, it's definitely a good time in the scholarship. Um, and 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 as I put on Twitter a few days ago. Thank God I'm around now as a, as a scholar because I think this is this is one of the uh, one of those fertile times that that uh, scholarship about the history of uh, of just Black folks in general, right of the, of the African diaspora. I think is just so it's just, it's just so so awesome, and so I believe that a, a political companion to Frederick Douglass in the year of Mister. Selphie King himself, Frederick Douglass, I believe, is a perfect perfect way to 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 you know bring about this last. Uh, a quarter of, of the year and in in, in, the, in his important year. And so uh, I thank you for coming on the program. But before we let before we let you go, if you don't mind, um, you know, we, we we get a little greedy out here at the at New Books and African American Studies channel. And I know that you were on uh, some time ago for uh, Freedom is Marinage. Because I actually listened to that one, um, and so, uh, so so that that was a little bit of time ago. So, is, is there something in the, in the works right now that that you're doing that where we can bring you back on the program? Um, well, I guess you guys will have to judge to
0: see if it'll be of interest. But there are there are two things I would um, kind of mention. Uh, the first is a, a monograph that I'm at work finishing now called on radicalizing the black radical tradition that probably is the most pertinent. And so uh, the short version is that everything that claims to be radical, in my view, isn't. <laughs> and yet at the same time, ooh, that is, ooh, ooh, okay. the titles, you know, I don't know how many times I see a title of fill in the blank, so-and-so and the black radical tradition or ex-figure movement and black radicalism. It's not all radical. And by extension, not in terms of talking about Afro-modern thought, but um, the book I'm working on is actually going to be a complete excavation of how we not only think of the term radical as an idea, but then actually saying there are uh, some figures and movements that actually do constitute Black black radical thought, both in the U.S., Africa, and the Caribbean. And so um, on radicalizing, the Black radical tradition is both um, having us Think through what radicalism means, the idea of radical and also black radicalism means, but also taking Cedric Robinson's term, the Black Radical Tradition, and in one sense questioning not only the kind of the genealogy, the homogeneity of a lot of ways of thinking about the Black Radical Tradition in our in our current moment, but also suggesting that whatever black the Black Radical Tradition is, it's all it's often posited as the critique of Black politics understood in its liberal. Libertarian and conservative forms, and so I'm suggesting in the book that actually um, the Black radical tradition is within the larger matrix of Black politics, which is also itself inclusive of, though extends beyond the U.S. And so, yeah, man, I, that's 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 um, you know, so among the figures, looking at Sylvia Winter and Walter Rodney and Cedric Robinson and Angela Davis, and also returning to what I wrote about earlier in "Freedom Is Marinage, the Haitian Revolution, and also a movement I've been thinking and, and 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 writing about in the recent years, the Rastafari movement, among others. Um, and so that's the that's the first. And the second is a jointly uh, a joint book with my colleague uh, Marilyn Nissim Sabat, and the book is called "Creolizing uh, Arendt. And so it is going to be a book um, that looks at the German emigrate. Um, philosopher and political theorist Hannah Arendt, who wrote a lot about not only kind of racism and race thinking, though oftentimes vis-a-vis kind of anti-Semitism, but the book is looking at what does it mean to kind of put Arendt's thought about questions of uh, violence and revolution and freedom and conversation with different uh, Caribbean and also Afro-modern thinkers. And what comes about if we think of creolization is not merely mixture, but what comes about when you put two or more elements together? What new thought emerges? And so um, I'm hoping that between on radicalizing the black radical tradition and uh, and creolizing Arendt, uh, among some other ventures, um, will help to continue the questions that a political companion to Frederick Douglass, Freedom is Marinage, and what I've hoped to be some of uh, my kind of ongoing work um, to not only push ourselves, myself included, about ideas that we've taken as a given, you know, and to really dig deep, not only in terms of history that bodies like the African-American uh, Intellectual History Society have brilliantly done, but to then think about the future. Um, what Edward Glissant called, and I'll end with this, a prophetic Vision of the past. What does it mean to not only think about time linearly, but what does it mean to think about a t- idea of time that we look back and rethink what we might have taken as a given, and project that rethinking into our present and the future? And that is how I think um, not only kind of forms of of, of radical thinking and, and radicalism. Can uh, can be addressed, but also different political tendencies um, from kind of not only center left, but also center right. Because uh, if we don't talk together and think together, then ultimately we're going to be like the myth of Sisyphus, right? We're going to be pushing the rock up the hill, thinking that we have kind of transformed, only to have the rock fall back, um, fall back down. And uh, and I really want to thank you for um, inviting me. To reason with you, because I think your work and uh, is is vitally important, and everything that um, your listeners are doing and thinking about is important. And so, um, uh, hopefully, that um, gives a little window into some of the things I'm up to now, but also an invitation for people to read a political companion to Frederick Douglass, and hopefully, if it has meaning, uh, to listeners and to you all then um then i think that would not only make me proud but it would certainly um be something frederick Douglass would be more than proud of
1: and and i definitely appreciate that and and i'm very much looking forward to um what is going on down the pike for you because i definitely uh i'm yeah that 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 first book that you just mentioned uh (laughs) uh, about is honestly i think that's something that uh, I've heard from a lot of people, and even thought personally about is if everything is radical, then what the hell actually does radical mean? Um, especially coming from you know the, the 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 work of Cedric Robinson, you know pioneering uh, a, a scholar, right? And so you know even as a, a trained historian or in training a historian right now, that it's like <laughs> many people have told me, like no matter what book you read this summer, Adam. You got to read Black Marxism, and, and like it's an essential work. And so, you know, having this, you know, book that you're you're gonna come out with soon, yeah, we we definitely got to have you back for that one. <laughs> no yeah, would, doubt about it.
0: I would love to. My short window to that is going to be also to say that even beyond Black Marxism, in many regards, for Cedric Robinson, I found actually his body of his other work to be more uh, informative. Actually, particularly his work on kind of cinema uh and black yes. movements and, I... yeah, and marxism is is there but it's only the the it's only the tipping point and so i'm i i it's it will probably be a book that is gonna <laughs> uh maybe have some people might not necessarily uh agree with some of my positions but it's definitely going to be one meant to invite like 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 my previous ones invitations and take very sit on a serious note to say well what do we mean by radicalism that fundamental not just black radical, but the idea of radical itself, because uh, you're right. It can't. Everything can't all be radical. But we need to get a sense, just like freedom. You and I might say freedom, but you and I mean may mean two completely differing ideas. And mm-hmm. then we're going to actions based upon those different ideas. So if you and I are saying radical or radicalism, but we have two completely different ideas and how we act and how we think and how, by extension, those who may want to suppress our existence, right? By virtue of what they think we may be doing, all of this all together, I think is is something that we should really um, be invested in because I think ultimately it will help to really refreshen what we might call the Black radical, um, you know, tradition. But I think I like to go to fundamentals, you know? And so when I said I, I applied to undeclared majors to colleges except chemistry, I used to uh, you know, um, uh, be very interested in chemistry and while I ended up studying kind of uh, black studies and political theory, I have seen chemistry and these fields as the same. There are different elements, atoms and compounds and molecules in the world that you can put together, you can deconstruct, right? And we need to be able to be intellectual chemists, right? We need to be able to actually really think what are the ways in which ideas kind of morph, heat up, get cooled down? How do they recombine uh and then ultimately, how do they
1: affect us in our everyday and On that note, it has been a pleasure to have Dr. Neil Roberts, Associate Professor of Africana Studies, Political theory, and the philosophy of Religion at Williams College out there in Massachusetts. Who has been on the program today to talk about his tremendous edited volume entitled *A Political Companion to Frederick Douglass*, published by our friends at the University at uh, Excuse Me, rather the University Press of Kentucky? And so, until next time, new books in African American Studies listeners, this is your host Adam McNeil, over and.